0: Hi, I'm Matt Moseson. Please rise, as I have the privilege to to read Scripture today. The passage is 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Maybe may be seated. Thanks, Matt. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you this morning. So if you're not already there, would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. As we were talking through the order of service uh, before we began today, I was talking to those that are leading worship. And one of the things that I had shared is something that I heard several years ago that's just made a, a huge impact on the way that I view our time together, particularly in worship and song. And that is when we gather together as the church and we sing these songs, some of which are familiar to us, some of which may be new to us. But when we sing these songs together week by week and we repeat these words, in essence, what we're really doing is we're preaching to our own hearts. And there's a reason for that, because there are some people who walk in today having had a great week, the best week of your life, you're feeling great, nothing can take you down, it's beautiful weather, and you just couldn't be more happy and excited with the way that things are going. And there's other people who walk in on any given week who are going through one of the hardest weeks they've ever walked through. And it's in those moments where we go through incredibly hard and difficult things where the songs that we sing become very real and true to us. Music has a unique power to shape our thinking and to shape our hearts. And so the reason that we sing these songs, yes and amen, is to worship and praise and honor God. And yes, it's to hear the saints uh, singing along with one another and to obey the commands of scripture, to lift up song to the Lord. But the other reason that we do it is to be practicing in our own hearts for those moments when life is incredibly difficult and hard. And so as we sing words like we did this morning, where we say, My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. What we're saying is God loves you so much. He cares for you so much, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that God has not forgotten you to the extent where in the moment where you feel most alone, God is reminding you that your name is written on his hands, carved into his heart. And there is no one that can remove you from the love of God. So I just say that to say this, it's so easy to come into a service and just do the things that are so rote and familiar for us, but realize that what we're doing is truly sacred, sacred in the sense that our hearts are practicing and hearing and being reminded of the truth that the Bible declares, and it's a comfort for us. And if it's not a comfort you need this week, it is a comfort that you will need. So I hope it's encouraging to, uh, to you. It's one of the things that crossed my mind this morning. and just wanted to share it before we get into the text today. Well, First Peter chapter four. Like many kids um, growing up in and around the church, one of the highlights of my year, every single year, was vacation Bible school. It was something that I looked forward to. It was something that I loved, and I really did, especially at those younger ages. Really did love everything about it. I loved seeing my friends. I loved singing the songs. I loved playing games. I loved doing the crafts. I just loved everything about it. But one of the things that is tattooed on my brain as a child is a particular song that we would sing nearly every year at Vacation Bible School. And my guess is if I took a survey, almost nobody in the room would know it, but it was a song that some 30 years later is still ticking through my brain and every once in a while makes an appearance. Uh, And the song is both deeply profound in its content and it's nuanced and complex, and it's moral messaging. It's a song called I Hate Sin. I'll give you one guess what that song is about. I'll spare you from singing but here are the lyrics of that song. I hate sin, I hate it bad. I hate sin, it makes me mad. It is wrong, it is wicked. When it comes along, I kick it. I hate sin, but I love God. Right? Now, again, maybe not the most nuanced song that you've ever heard, but some 30 years later, it's still in my mind. So the messaging of that song must have had an effect. But I think for many people, the whole encapsulation of their Christian faith could be boiled down to that idea, which in essence is really the message of religion, right? Stop sinning and try harder that's our natural default state it's our natural way that we interact with faith it's the natural way that for many of us at least we approach scripture just let me read the commands let me write off the checklist let me do the things that it says and and this text along with the whole of 1 Peter Peter is trying to communicate to us that our faith in God our relationship with him is something entirely different than that 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 our our christian faith is not first a religion or a moral practice it is first a relationship And the mentality that says stop sinning and try harder has all kinds of ability to shape and to to put us into a proper outward conformity, but it does not have the ability to transform the heart, your internal drives and your passions and your motivations. And the reason that today's text is so vital for us is that Peter is first going to give us the why before he gives us the how. And it's important for us to recognize the distinction because on several occasions through our history, you've heard us reference this classic rule of interpretation, which, you, which if you have not internalized, you need to internalize, particularly if you're a list maker. You need to internalize this rule of interpretation because it affects and changes the whole way that you read Scripture. And that rule is this. Whenever you read a command in Scripture, you need to look around the broader context. You need to look around and see what that instruction is rooted in. Because the instructions of Scripture are always, always, always rooted in who God has declared you first to be. In other words, God does not save you only to leave you on your own and go, okay, I did my part, now you go ahead and do yours. No, in your salvation, you've been given, according to the book of Revelation, a new name. You've been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've been given a new spiritual family as we talked about earlier in this series. And everything that God calls you to do as a Christian flows out of that new identity that you've been given. So one commentator, a man named Justin Taylor, stated it this way, and you've heard us reference this before. Imperatives, that's commands, imperatives divorced from indicatives become impossibilities. Imperatives divorced from indicatives become impossibilities. The commands of Scripture, divorced from what God has already declared to be true about you, becomes an impossible task. And remember that this whole book is written to remind believers of who they are in Jesus Christ, the hope that they've been given in this life, and the empowerment that they've been given to endure in the midst of hardship. And if you begin to look at the commands of this text without that broader context in mind, you are robbing yourself of that indicative reminder that Christ has made us new, and therefore, you will be unable to obey the imperatives that God's going to give to us in this text. So Peter begins in verse 1 by saying this, since therefore, again, classic rule of interpretation, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's therefore. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, notice the logic that Peter begins with here. He says, since Christ suffered in His own flesh, you now, Christian, have been enabled to arm yourselves with that Christ-like mentality. Do you understand the connection He's making? Since Jesus did this, you now are able to have the same mentality as Christ. See, if, if, if this world is all that there is, if there is no God, or if God is some sort of absentee landlord, then there would be no reason to be willing to endure any hardship because there would inherently be nothing noble about it. It would be foolish to endure hardship rather than just seeking pleasure if this life is all that it's about. If this life is all there is, then there's nothing beyond this life to live for, and therefore we ought all eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The one who dies with the most toys wins, right? That mentality, live life to the fullest, live for now, enjoy the pleasures that this world has to offer because you only live once and the foolishness of any kind of mindset that tries to deny the existence of a God is that those very same people then insist on some sort of humanistic morality. But if there is no God, what is the instruction then or what is the basis for a human morality? I remember reading a book several years ago by a famous atheist by the name of A.C. Grayling, and his whole book was, was premised on the idea that we needed to create, within the context of humanity, a morality that was not dependent on a religious system. But what's interesting is, as you read through what were very thoughtful and intellectual arguments for his point, as you worked your way through the book, what you ultimately determined is that he's saying somebody, somewhere, needs to determine a set of humanistic moral behaviors by which we all abide. And the problem, of course, then, is who gets to actually set that? By necessity, it ends up being the people who have the most power or the most money or the most influence, people who have, who have the most ability to enforce their own worldview on everybody else. And so when the outside world looks at Christianity and looks at it as inherently antiquated, looks at it as foolish, looks at it as arrogant for declaring that there is, in fact, a moral truth, what they are denying in that very same moment is that at least we have a standard by which we operate that we claim is not our own. And a standard, by the way, that does not change over time. But if it's true that God actually has a will and a purpose for your life, if it's true that you were created and designed with intentionality and with purpose, then there, then there inherently are eternal consequences to consider. And if that's true, then it would actually be foolish not to live with the idea of eternity in mind. And Peter is going to go back to this idea of Jesus as the empowering example. And both of those words, by the way, are vital to understanding this, because if you just view Jesus as an example, he just becomes one more person to imitate. He becomes Mother Teresa, he becomes Gandhi, he becomes pick-your-favorite-philanthropist, someone whose life is worth modeling, but you actually have no power to do it. And if he's just empowering, meaning he gives you some sort of moral fortitude, but no model for how to live. That's helpful, but ultimately it doesn't define how our lives ought to look. But in Jesus, we have this empowering example. We have the both end of what it is that we need from him. And the argument that Peter makes here is that when Jesus suffered and died, he inherently, through his actions, proved that there was something infinitely greater and more deserving of our lives than the mere pleasures of this world. His very life demonstrated that and therefore empowered you to live the same way. So my favorite conversation about this comes from C.S. Lewis in an argument that he had written, an article that he had written. And in that article, he he describes Jesus as the pioneer of life. I think I read this quote on Easter Sunday, but I'll read just a portion of it again because I think it's so helpful. He describes Jesus as the pioneer of life, and here's what he says. In the resurrection, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. And in being, to use Lewis's words, the pioneer of life, in facing and defeating death through the resurrection, Jesus both proved that there is more to life than just the momentary human pleasures for which this world lives, and he enabled you through the new birth to live up to your eternal potential. Eternal potential. And Peter is here saying, because Jesus did this, now you have been enabled to do it too. And then he gives us this strange phrase, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, some people in kind of unique or, or different narrow influences of theology have taken that verse to mean that if you're a believer, you will not sin. All you have to do is read the book of 1 John or Romans chapter 7 or any one of a dozen different passages in the New Testament to determine that that's actually not the case. So if Peter is not suggesting that we're able to live sinless lives as Christians, what ultimately then is he actually suggesting? He's saying that in the moment when you're actually willing to begin suffering for your faith, You are being driven and therefore giving evidence to the fact that you now have an eternal perspective. That Jesus has taken hold of your life in a unique and profound way. That you are no longer pursuing the momentary pleasures found in the soul-numbing effects of sin. But you're actually beginning to exercise faith that what you believe and the doctrine that you hold is now beginning to work its way out into your life. So not just the holding of right ideas or clinging to sound doctrine, but your actual faith is being tested. You are now showing through your willingness to suffer that sin is no longer the operating principle of your life. And then he says in verse 1, so arm yourselves with that same understanding, with this understanding of Christ. He's saying take it up for yourself. Don't just view it as a gift that's, that's been given to you but sits in a closet long forgotten. Take it up and use that gift for yourself. Take on this understanding. If you claim to follow Christ, pick it up and use it. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices For doing what the Gentiles, that is non-believers, want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, what's most interesting to me to this text is actually something that is implicit here, which is that Peter actually presumes that these Christians have come out of this self-indulgent lifestyle. He presumes that they were once part of it. In other words, Peter doesn't pretend that Christian people don't have regretful pasts and very, very real temptations toward sin. And just to put a fine point on it, he actually lists very specific, very explicit examples. He says living in sensuality. He's talking here about unrestrained hedonism that there is nothing holding you back from every desire of your heart that whatever it is you feel you want to do is what you do that you are engaging pursuing chasing every passing fancy of this world evil desires or maybe translated in your bibles as sinful passions most commentators think that this is a reference to some sort of violent or angry behavior. These are passions of the flesh, right? All of these listed are passions of the flesh. And then he puts together in these, in kind of a, a triumvirate, he says, drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. And this is exactly what it sounds like. He's saying that there are people, all sorts of people in this world who give themselves over to banquets and feasts and parties and sensuality. They're given over to immorality, pursuits of sexual pleasure, pursuits of physical pleasure, pursuits of drunkenness. And then he finally ends it with one that is just a little bit different than the others. He says lawless idolatry. And that word "lawless idolatry" in this context doesn't just mean, it doesn't just mean worshiping a foreign God or worshiping something somebody other than God himself, but it, it actually describes evil acts of idol worship that violated civil law or societal norms. And what I love about Peter's description here is that it's so consistent with everything you find about the Christian faith in the New Testament, which is that the Christian faith is not shocked by the extent of our sins that God is not trying to whitewash the human experience or deny the reality of the temptation of sin or deny the seriousness of our own behavior or our past behavior. Nor is he saying that Christianity is exclusive to those who somehow manage to live an upright, respectable life. No, his instruction to all believers within the sound of his voice is, I understand that this is what defined you in your days before knowing Christ, but don't let that define you anymore which means that you had Christians who were actively participating in this. And Peter's saying, because you're a Christian and you're living this way, your behavior is not lining up with who you are. You're trying to live the Christian life devoid of who God has actually declared you to be, and it's led you into all kinds of passions. And all throughout the Bible, what you find is that God redeems in miraculous and amazing ways the failure of humanity, including, by the way, the failures of the most notable heroes of the faith. Adam, our forefather, failed as humanity's representative. Noah failed miserably as a father. Abraham failed miserably as a husband. Moses failed as a leader. Jonah failed as a pastor. David failed as a king. So the purpose of the recording of these people's lives is not primarily how we typically view them, which is to view them as an example for how we ought to live. No, their lives are recorded to reveal the depths to which God is willing to go to rescue depraved people in need of a savior. Their lives are not primarily intended to reveal a moral pattern worthy of imitation, but their absolute dependence on the grace of God. Their lives are not intended to reveal how God can recruit brilliant and successful and honorable people, but the extent to which God is able to redeem broken and insecure and sinful people. And likewise here, Peter is acknowledging these Christians' past, but what he's saying is you are not defined by your past, and you are not currently defined by your struggles or temptations. You are not defined by your disobedience, but by Jesus' obedience. You're not defined by your failures, but by Jesus' perfection. You're not defined by your previous lifestyle. You're defined by your present grace. Your past does does not define your identity or your worth or your future. God's declaration about you in Jesus Christ is what defines your identity, your worth, and your future. And to quote one Old Testament scholar, Chad Byrd, great danger lurks where people assume that they are so bad that they've outsinned grace or that they're so good that they've out-virtued their need of it. See, as a Christian, your worth is not determined by your best moments or your worst moments. And it's not determined by your ability to live up to your own standard of righteousness or your ability to live up to other people's expectations of you. Your worth is determined by God's loving grace on your life. And Peter then turns his attention after this implicit declaration to say something that is very practical, almost proverbial in its nature. He says this For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Peter says, you've been made a new people, you've been given a new name, you're part of a new family, and it's time to start doing new things. You've already spent enough time living that old way. It's the idea that all of us face where we live with such intense regret for particular moments or actions or even whole seasons of our life that we sometimes find ourselves living each day in constant regret for the past and therefore unable to live in the present, in the middle of what God's doing with a recognition of His grace, with a recognition of His hand of blessing on our life, with a recognition of who He's declared us to be because we just live each moment thinking, man, if I could go back and do that again, if I could make that relationship different, if I could do that action different, if I could interact with my kids differently, if I could have that conversation with a parent who's gone, if I could do any of these things, my life now would be so much better And while that is a very human thing to experience, what you find in passages like this and others is God declaring things like, my mercies are new to you every day. I'm not holding your past against you. I'm refusing to remember the things that you've done that are sinful. That's not who you are in my sight. And the reason we are able, in human terms, to forgive ourselves for our past, when most people say, I understand that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, the thing that enables you to move beyond your past is a recognition that the person whose opinion matters most in the world refuses to view you through that lens. So how much time and energy and heartache and tears do we waste in regret? Rather than, an, than a present dependence on his goodness and grace. He moves then to verse 4 with respect to this, they, that are those who are mistreating you by virtue of your Christian faith, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and therefore they malign you. Peter's saying, They knew you before you knew Jesus and they knew the lifestyle you lived, and they knew the things you lived for, and they knew the parties you went to, and they knew, they knew the things that you did, and now they're thrown off that you don't live that way anymore. See, when your lifestyle changes, and what one, when what you live for is different, some people will automatically see that as judgment and condemnation. They'll automatically view that as a declaration on their lifestyle. Well, here's this person that used to hang out with me and spend time with me and party with me, but now they don't. So they must think they're better than me. They must think they've got it all figured out. They must must be one of those antiquated, bigoted, judgmental Christians. Well, listen, as Christians, we ought not be communicating a self-righteousness or a judgment as those who've been rescued out of sin We ought to be humble and gracious in our interaction with a world that does not know Jesus. Why would we expect people to act any differently than what's in line with their own identity? But even so, says Peter, don't be surprised when that world slanders you. And by virtue of their faith, these Christians were no longer participating in these practices. They had a whole different value system and different joys. And listen, in 2,000 years, nothing has changed nothing. There is nothing new under the sun. And the very same thing that Christians faced 2,000 years ago is experienced by Christians today all around the world, albeit it plays out in different ways in in different nations and in different parts of the world. But Christians will always face criticism, will always face hardship, and may, may very likely face persecution when we stand against cultural tides and expectations. And what Peter is saying is don't be surprised when people view your life in Christ as standing in such harsh contrast to their own that they view it as nothing more than a judgmental spirit. It doesn't give license to be judgmental, but understand that that's how it's going to be received. And here's his word of, of hope for these believers who are suffering at the hands of a cruel culture, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those are hard words for any culture at any time. Because we don't like the idea of God's wrath and God's judgment. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to read about it. But what Peter is suggesting is this. To these people suffering at the hands of of the culture at this time, he's saying to the extent that you suffer, understand that there is a God who judges and sets things right. That there is wrath coming for those who don't know Jesus. And these Christians were not intended to receive this as, don't worry, they'll get theirs too. They were intended to receive this with a heart of compassion that those who were abusing them for their own faith needed more desperately for their persecution of the believers. They needed even more desperately Jesus Christ. They needed him all the more because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. And how ought that affect our view of a world around us that is at odds with God? How often is our temptation to view the sins and the excesses and the flaunting of sinful lifestyles around us and just to think, how disgusting, how terrible. Do we have a heart of compassion in the realization that those who do not know Jesus Christ will face Him one day for their actions? Will stand guilty before an almighty and a holy God, the same very position that you and I deserve and would have received had it not been for the grace of Christ. And does that heart of humility and compassion translate as we interact with people in this world? And he says, Understand that this that this God, the God of the Bible, is going to sin in judgment of the living and the dead. And because of what verse 6 is about to say, which we'll get in a moment, we understand that this is not a reference to those who have already died and those who are currently alive, but rather this is a reference, or at least it appears to be a reference to those who are alive spiritually and those who are dead spiritually. In other words, there is a standard of truth that is not prescribed by a particular culture or a subset of people or intellectual elites or ethicists the Bible is stating unequivocally that truth is not relative, that there is an objective standard of what truth is and what is right and wrong, that there is one universal truth established by God to which all people are going to be held accountable. And all you have to do is read Romans chapter 1 if you want to read more about that. But then he continues and he says this in verse 6, and here's the word of admonition, even with our hearts towards those who are who don't know Christ in this world. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In other words, he's saying, Do you understand why the gospel is preached even to those who don't believe and will not believe? If we believe what 1 Peter chapter 1 says that we are elect exiles chosen of God for salvation, if you believe in what Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 says, what Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9 says that ultimately it is God who saves and not us ourselves, if that is true, then why don't we just proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are going to believe? And the first and most obvious answer that Peter gives us in this very text is because you don't know who's going to believe. Because the means that God has chosen to use to save the lost of this world is the proclamation, the preaching, not just formally on a Sunday morning, but far, far more often from people as they interact with their neighbors and their coworkers and their kids and their parents and their coworkers and and the people with whom they come in contact with in everyday life, that the call to you is to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. How shall they hear without a preacher? How are the people of this world to believe in a gospel that they have not heard proclaimed? And that's what we'll talk about at length next week. But for that reason, believers are called to proclaim the gospel to everyone, including the very people who are mistreating them. It's the first deacon of the church, Stephen, praying and proclaiming the gospel as he's being stoned at the hands of the Pharisees. It's Paul preaching and proclaiming to the very guards who had locked him up. It's Jesus Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A compassionate interaction with a lost world. Now, again, the question that might be going through your mind in all of this is, okay, all of this sounds great. I get that you're telling me I should do these things, but where does the power come from? You said there was a why behind the how, so where is it? I think we find it in verse 2. It says, Do these things, remember Christ's suffering, so that you can suffer the same way, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Well, how does that actually motivate and animate my belief? How does it actually lead me to exercise faith? Well, when you find yourself maturing to the point where you're willing to suffer for doing right, you are demonstrating that you are no longer interested in pursuing sin for the sake of sin. And you you are now interested in pursuing the will of God. And that's when we find ourselves emulating the empowering example of Jesus. We find this example in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, where the author of Hebrews says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Through tears and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, when he cries out to the Father and says, if there's any way we can do this that doesn't require me to go through what I'm about to go through, let's, let's do that. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what Hebrews chapter 5 tells us is that Jesus was absolutely heard by the Father, though he still experienced the suffering and brutality of the cross. Now, we have vernacular when we talk about prayer, and particularly answered prayer, which is when things go our way and we get what we ask for and we see God's hand move in a particular way that is consistent with what we ask, we say, I'm so excited and I have a praise to share. God answered my prayer. And generally, I think we all know what we mean when we say that, but it's actually a very poor way of talking about it, because the truth is, if you are a son, according to Hebrews chapter 5, and a host of other passages, the guarantee is that God hears and answers your prayer, though He may not answer it in exactly the way that you'd hoped, or in the time that you expected. So Tim Keller, talking about this idea, said, God will always be faithful to give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything He knows. Now, you've got to kind of think through that a little bit. God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything He knows. You think about times and seasons of your life where you walked through hardship or difficulty or frustrating seasons and you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and and it seems as if God's not hearing and God's not responding and not reacting, and then you'll see an answer to prayer where God works in a miraculous way that you could never have expected, and it couldn't have gone any other way than how it went. Will did God answer your prayer? Absolutely but in the same way that your child may come to you and ask for a fifth or a 10th or a 20th piece of candy, there may be a time when you say no because we've got a good steak dinner planned, much to the chagrin and disappointment of your child. You are giving them something that is infinitely better for them if only they understood what you understand. And in a very similar way, God interacts with his children See, even though he always answers, he may not answer in the way that we assume is best. And throughout Jesus' life, in order to be consistent with his identity, in order to live out the calling that the Father had put on his life, Jesus had to obey, and his obedience led him to being misunderstood, to be criticized, to be ridiculed, and ultimately to be killed. But, the writer of Hebrews says, despite his earthly suffering, his prayer was answered, And he was no less a son. His prayer was answered in that ultimately, through what Jesus Christ faced, he brought about the resurrection. Something infinitely greater than what we could have ever hoped for. And had we been in the garden that day, as those men came to arrest Jesus, we likely would have been right there with Peter swinging a sword you're not going to do this to my Lord, you're not going to do it to my Savior with all the best intentions in the world, not realizing that through the hardship that Jesus was going to face, something infinitely greater was going to be given. Do we actually trust that our suffering in this life is for a purpose? And I'm not convinced that we always do. Certainly speaking for myself, I don't think that's always the case. Because the first question that comes to mind for us is, why? When when the question that God is ultimately going to answer is, you need to to wait and see what I have in store for you through this. See, the promise of this text and the promise of Hebrews chapter 5 is that our suffering, your suffering, is not wasted. Your hurts are not lost on God that through it you are being taught obedience as a son and daughter. In other words, there is an element of our suffering that actually goes to prove to us, to convince us that we are sons, that we are daughters, that we belong to Him, that God is doing something good in the midst of what's hard, and ultimately that God, as we've talked about for the last several weeks, uses our difficulties for His own perfect plan and for our ultimate joy. And our motivation then, brothers and sisters, is that even in suffering, we have absolute confidence in the goodness of God's will. My encouragement to you today, especially if you're in a position where you go, I just don't believe that. I know it's true. I get that it's right. If somebody else asked me, is God going to do something good through my suffering? I would undoubtedly say yes, but I don't believe it and I don't feel it and I'm not experiencing it. I think the invitation of this text is to cry out with God, cry out to God rather, with tears, with groans, to make your pain made known to him, to admit your own doubt, to admit your own doubt of his goodness, to tell him that you're not convinced he's good, that you're not seeing his hand in it. And in doing so, in admitting your own weakness, to cry out for God to prove to you His goodness. The problem, of course, is that we don't always get to define how He proves His goodness. But God, nonetheless, has an amazing ability to answer that prayer. And you see Him doing it all through Scripture. You see it in the life of Adam. You see it in the life of Noah and Moses. You see it in the life of Jonah and David. You see it in those very same men who failed in their own weakness. You see how God wove together the broken mess of their life and brought about amazing and incredible things. Out of nothing other than his own kind grace. God is big enough to handle your doubts. And he's big enough to handle your worries. And he's big enough to handle your questions. So trust him to be good in the middle of your own weakness. Let's pray. God, whenever we come together, as we talked about earlier, there are days where, where we feel like nothing can knock us down a peg. And there are days where we feel like we can barely get out of bed where life is so difficult and so heavy and so hard that we just don't know how to move forward. And so God, I pray that we would be able to bless you and praise you and glorify you and thank you for the good things that you've given us, to see your hand of grace in all of those things. And God, likewise, to cry out to you with our distress, to admit our weakness and to admit our doubt, to say with the Father in the book of Mark, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, God, would we trust that you are so good that even in the moments where we doubt your goodness, you inevitably can come through? Would you prove to us through the hardships that we face that we are sons and daughters? God, that those moments of suffering are not wasted because they prove to us the identity that we have in you. And ultimately, God, then would that play out in the exercise of our faith in this life? God, I realize that none of these things that I'm asking for are easy. And God, I thank you that you don't pretend they are, but I thank you that you hear the groans and the cries and the prayers and that you answer us because we're sons and daughters, because of what Christ has done for us. God, for three weeks in a row, we've essentially talked about the same theme. And I can attribute that to nothing other than the sovereign move of your hand and leading us to this book at this point in our lives. So God, do what only you can do in and through your word. We know that it doesn't return void. Help us to trust that goodness. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.